Good to see you. Great to be with you. And uh, today's a special day for one of our campuses, and we are uh, we're joined today uh, with Cedar Lake and our HP campus uh, together. And uh, I just want to take a moment and to acknowledge that uh, this week is three years of our HP campus, the Bethel Church HP, being in existence. And uh, what a wonderful thing God is doing at uh, that campus, and it just continues to flourish and grow. We're so thankful for Pastor Dan and his leadership there. And so on behalf, at least, of the Crown Point campus, uh, and why don't we have the Cedar Lake campus, and HP, if you want to clap for yourselves, you can, but let's just congratulate HP three years, Bethel Church campus. Can we do that? Congratulations. All right, let's get into God's Word together, and, and one of the things I've noticed about swimming pools is that most swimming pools have a shallow end and they have a deep end, and uh, you have to be careful about you know, which is which, particularly if you can't swim, and you maybe have been viewing Romans for all the hoopla and all the talk about you know, how incredibly doctrinal it is and, and the depth of the book that so far in our series, maybe it hasn't quite seemed over your head or over any of our heads. Uh, well, today we step into the deep end, and we're going to be in the deep end uh, almost the rest of the way here, and it's not a gradual slope, it's really a, a drop-off, but what a wonderful place to get over your head, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to realize that these are things that God wants us to understand. He did not include it in Scripture because he didn't want us to understand it. He included it because he does. And so as we get into our, our time here, we are beginning now a section, okay, a series. I explained when we began Romans that really we're going to have a series of mini-series within the series, and today we begin this larger mini-series entitled The Gospel and Our Misery. And this is going to take us through chapter 3, verse 20. Now today's message within this series is entitled The, Maj the Majesty of God and the Misery of Man. Okay, The Majesty of God and the Misery of Man. And I'd like to read our text today. We are in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. May God bless his word to us today. One of the things we discover in Romans is that little words are, are really big. Okay, Little words are really big. And we have a little word here that has a key role in understanding what Paul is doing here. And it's the little word at the beginning of verse 18, for... Now, that little word could be translated because, 
transitions between what he has just been saying in the famous Romans 1, 16 and 17, and what he is about to say in verse 18. And what do we see in verses 16 and 17? Well, the fact that salvation is from God, and that it is the power of God for all who believe, that there is a righteousness that comes to us by faith. So from that, he says, for, now what I'm about to say, okay? So that's the transition word, and we can say, well, why, why is that so important? Here's why. Because I'm going to guess, we've had some people that have been attending here the last three, four weeks as we've been in Romans, and you've been sort of walking away and thinking to yourself, I don't get it. I don't get why this is a big deal. I don't understand these people that are singing songs about uh, Jesus and doing so with, like, seem to be sort of into it, and I don't understand why uh, we have all these churches, and I I don't get the big deal. I don't know why this is something to be passionate about or even, frankly, that interested in. Well, what about the wrath of God? For the wrath of God. Not a word that we typically use, wrath. You know, if you're having an argument with your spouse, you don't say, I'm really wrathful towards you right now. You know, you will say, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm angry. We don't typically use the word wrath. Uh, and especially when it comes to God, we don't oftentimes think about God this way. We don't necessarily talk about God this way. The words that we are much more comfortable using regarding God are the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. These kinds of words, we like these words more than we like thinking about the wrath of God. So we kind of treat God like a buffet where we sort of pick the attributes that we like about him and we sort of pass on the ones that we don't like about him. And in reality, we can't do that with God because no matter, it doesn't matter what we like about God or wish that he was or whatever it is, he is who he is. And he is communicating in scripture, this is who I am and this is what I am like. And the wrath of God and the anger of God is a massive theme in all of scripture, in fact, one commentator I read said that the wrath of God, the anger of God, the displeasure of God are talked about far more than even the love of God. So this is not like some random reference to the wrath of God, it is all over in scripture. But I want you to realize here that the definitive explanation of the gospel does not begin with the love of God. It does not begin with the grace of God. It does not begin with God having a wonderful plan for your life. The definitive explanation of the gospel begins with the wrath of God. And I believe the reason he does this is that he has to give us the bad news in order for the good news to be good news. Otherwise, it seems like news. And maybe you are here and you've left here and every week you're sort of like, it's just news to me. I don't get why it's good news. I'm going to say today, biblically, that it's because you have no idea about the wrath of God and what that means for you forever. He begins with the wrath of God, and so will we now as we try to understand what is he saying here. What is God's wrath? And as we think about the wrath of God, one of our challenges is that we, we, we want to put a human definition to a divine quality. And so we think about anger, for example, 
And we think about times that we've been angry or people have been angry with us, and we say that's the way that God is angry. No, because human anger always, 99.9% of the time, has something to do with me. Okay, it's selfish, it is prideful, uh, it's human anger. We have never been exposed to pure, holy wrath. But that's what God's wrath is. Here's some definitions uh, that some people have given of the wrath of God. Personal indignation towards human sinfulness. Here's another one. The wrath of God is not, of course, an emotional rage, but a steadfast and absolute opposition to all that is evil. It is essential to the character of God. Schreiner says, it is holy and righteous response to those who do not worship and esteem him as God. Now here's the best one because it's mine. Uh, God's justice maintaining God's glory by defending God's holiness. God's justice maintaining God's glory by defending God's holiness. And we see this in the rest of the verse. Go back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress a truth. There is something in the sinfulness of mankind that is suppressing a truth of some kind. Now we're gonna get into what that truth is in a moment. But to see here that God's justice and wrath against sin is a kind of statement of his own infinite worth. I mean, why else go to the trouble, really? If you think about the story of redemption, why go to all the trouble of everything that's described in the Bible if you are God and you owe man nothing? Why have a flood? Why have an ark? Why, why create in the first place? I mean, why, why incarnate the second person of the Trinity? Why, why, why do Holy Scripture? I mean, why do the church? Why, why do it? And the answer to that is not because we are worth it. The answer to that is because God is worth it. And specifically, his glory. His glory. Who cares if people violate his holiness by sinning against his moral glory? It's no big deal, these little white lies, it's like everybody's doing it. I mean, why not just sort of be God and go, oh, you're all cute anyway, and just sort of wink at it. Okay, and, and here's, this is not a perfect illustration, but an illustration of this is if you, if you drive into a town, and, or you live in a town where there's a sheriff and there are laws, but nobody enforces them. Nobody even cares about them. It is a lawless town. What, what, what do you know about the value of the law? In that town, it's not worth much because nobody cares that justice is being applied according to the standard of the law. So the lack of care is a value statement of the worth of the law in the first place. But if you go into a town where the law is held high and the rule of law is held high, there you are gonna find justice that is not lackluster. It is going to be precise. It is going to be passionate. It's going to be tireless. It's going to be exact. 
And to realize that sin, the sin of Satan, the sin of of millions of angels that followed him, the sin of billions of human beings that have lived on earth, all of us, it is all a falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. If God's glory means nothing, then that's no big deal. But if God's glory is infinitely worthy, Now the justice of God is going to be exact and precise, tireless, and last forever. If God's glory means everything, then righteous anger against the unrighteousness of man is not only needed, it is required. If God wasn't wrathful against sin, friends, realize in that millisecond, God would cease to be God. He has to be wrathful against sin. Because if he is not, then God himself would fall short of the glory of God. He would be sinning. God would be sinning if he wasn't wrathful against sin, which is itself a violation of his glory. Are you with me on that? Glory demands justice, and justice defends holiness. Now, unless you're a universalist here today, and the universalist, somebody just says, ah, we all go to heaven in the end. Unless you're a universalist here today, there is, there is no way to have a glorious God and not have hell. Okay? You just can't. God had to make hell. Now he had to make hell when Satan sinned against him in the first place. But there it was for Satan and anybody else that fell short of the glory of God. It had to be there. Hell is a statement that God's holiness matters. I mean, let's, let's go back to our driving into the town illustration. If you drive into a town and on the one side of the town there's a prison and, and then there's a downtown jail and on the other side there's another prison, What do you think about that town? You're like, man, this is a place these people take the law very seriously. Hell is a statement. Hell is a requirement of an eternal holy God against violators of his law, against his glory. I don't know if I'm getting that through very well. Prisons exist because the rule of law matters. Hell exists because God's glory matters, and his holiness does as well. And further, we have to realize, friends, that this wrath that God has is against both sin and sinners. Some people try to get a little wiggly on this, and they say, well, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And yet, God doesn't send sin to hell, he sends sinners to hell. God's wrath is against both the violation and the violators. Now, time doesn't allow me to talk about how God can be wrathful and loving at the same time. But we affirm that. We'll get into that more maybe later on. If you've been a parent, you can understand this in some part because you can both love your children and be incredibly angry at them at the same time. And the parents said, amen. 
So Paul here isn't saying, God's mad at you for what you've done, but don't worry about it because he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No. God's plan for sinners who are not under his grace is hell forever, and that doesn't sound wonderful to me. God is angry with sinners and their sin. And we have to begin at this point because if we don't understand the wrath of God, we're never going to understand how Jesus' death could be, and this is a big word, propitiatory or anger-satisfying. If God's not angry with us, then why did Jesus have to come and die on the cross in the first place? If God's just benevolently loving towards all of us and we're all saved in the end, if there is no wrath, God is angry with sinners and their sin. Why did the sky grow black as Jesus hung on the cross? The wrath of God. Why did Jesus cry out as he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that is the wrath of God against sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And so there is a basic question in Romans. Are you under the wrath of God or are you under the grace of God? And Romans is gonna keep sticking our nose in that basic same question over and over again. And maybe I can ask you here today, as you sit here right now, are you under the wrath of God or are you under the grace of God? Which will it be for you forever? Life or death? Love or wrath? Heaven or hell? Now, verse 18 ends with this curious little clause regarding sinful humanity that he's going to unpack through the rest of the chapter. And we're spending like four weeks on chapter one, okay? Or more, I don't know. But uh, we'll see, okay? So, who suppress the truth? Really? Like, exactly what truth are we suppressing? I didn't wake up in the morning today and say, today I'm going to suppress the truth. No, I don't, what are you talking about here? Well, it is the truth about God that is seen in the world. And he unpacks that now, wherein he says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them. The them is the sinners in unrighteousness. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In, notice, little word, in the things that have been made. And the conclusion now, he says, is so that they are without excuse. So what Paul does here is he anticipates the question that these Roman Christians or any of us would have based on what he has just said about the wrath of God to say, hey, how, how can I... I don't, how can I know that I'm under the wrath of God? Like, that seems completely not fair to me. I'm just living life, I'm doing my thing, and you're telling me that, like, the wrath of God is on me and I'm going to experience this forever? It doesn't seem fair unless God was telling me about it. And now Paul, anticipating that protest, says that God made it plain and has made it plain by creating 
trillions of reflections in creation of what he is actually like. Now this is often known or talked about theologically as natural revelation. And to realize, here's a little quick excursus here on on revelation, to realize that God has communicated to us in really three basic categories. The first one is the one we're talking about, natural revelation, where God makes physical things that are invisibly true about him. The second area that God has revealed is in the word, okay, the word of God, this special revelation, written revelation. The Bible is God speaking to us. I do this a lot when I, you know, God is talking to us through the Bible. And the third one is simply his son. How has God talked to us? The world, the word, and his son. And Jesus is the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1 says. Now, how does God exactly speak to us through creation? And what do we learn about about God? And to realize that God is spirit, okay? God is spirit. Creation is physical, okay? God is not a part of this creation. There are people that believe that. These are pantheistic religions like Buddhism or Hinduism would say that God is somehow in his being a part of this creation. No, no. God created this entire universe as a separate reality from him. He transcends it. He oversees it. He empowers it. But it is not God. So how does God communicate to us? Well, what we find in creation is that this universe, in, in, the, in the galactic level and in the atomic level and everything in between, is one massive visible reflection of God's invisible nature. Okay? It's one massive reflection or a self-portrait of God. Here's some other verses that talk about this famously. Psalm 19 The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Or to say it this way, there's no no place in the world where this language is not understood. God in creation. Here's Isaiah 6. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So how does this work exactly? How does God speak to us? Well, I'm going to illustrate this way. Okay? I have here a standard mirror. Okay? Standard mirror. And I can hold this mirror in a way. Let me see here. Okay, there you are. I can hold this mirror in a way where I can see you. Okay, there's the godly people in the the front of the church. And some of the less godly in the back, I see you. If I angle it right, I I can see everybody here. And if I angle it right, you can see me. So I can say, hey look, I see you. I, and it would be true, I, I see you. But a mirror, which communicates sight, is woefully inadequate to communicate the wholeness of a person, right? 
So I could say, I see you, but, but you're, you're smaller in here than you actually are. You're two-dimensional in here. You're, you're three-dimensional out here. I can't, I can't get a sense of volume and weight. I can't get a sense of height necessarily. I, I can't see your internal organs. I can't tell your intelligence. I have no sense of your life experience, your dreams, your passions. So I can see you in a limited way, but I can't see you in totality because of the limitations of, of a mirror. So it's really effective, many of you have these at home, but it is not sufficient for the totality of who somebody is. Are you with me? Okay, a mirror. This universe, by God's design, is billions upon billions of reflections of what he is like. Now, not the totality of what he is, but we can accurately say in creation to God, I see you. And there are certain things about God that are evidently able to see in this created order. Now here's where it gets a little sticky. Because Paul says here that we perceive what God is like in creation. We perceive it. Now how do we do that? How do we perceive God's nature? And Paul here highlights two aspects of God's nature that are seen in creation. His power and his divine nature. So at the very least, his power and his divine nature for an image bearer living in a world with the sky and mountains and oceans and all the things that are in it, we at least can see that he is there, his divine nature, and the amazing power of God to create a universe of this scale, complexity, and beauty. Now, to help you with that, watch this. I would suppose on one level you could Right now, if I said, what do you see? You'd say, well, it's thunderstorms and water and sky. What do you perceive? Is there something within you that senses in the scale and the grandeur of the creation around us that senses that there is something or someone beyond what you see. Can you perceive in this grandeur God in the reflections of his nature which he has built into the world around us? That there is a creator that there is a God, that he is incredibly powerful, that he is beautiful to create such incredible complexity and symmetry in the world around us. God shouts through creation every day, I'm here, and this is what I am like. Can you see him? Do you hear him? 
Do you taste him? Do you feel him in the things that have been made? Paul says there is so much of God in the reflections in the world around us that men are, notice the text, without excuse. Men are without excuse. And we're going to hit on this again more later on, but part of what creation does is it creates accountability. There isn't going to be anybody who's going to get to heaven and go, God, I didn't know you were there. I didn't realize it because God's going to be saying, I was speaking every day of your life. You just didn't listen. You didn't have eyes to see, really, to perceive that I was here. Further, beyond just the power of God and the divine nature of God, Paul's going to talk in Romans that God has given all of us a moral awareness. We call it a conscience. That is universally true across all human beings, every society, down through history, there has been a basic understanding that the world is a moral world, and there are some things that are right, and there are some things that are wrong. Further, we come to find out that in the story of the Bible, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that they realized was that they were naked. And they connected this feeling of shame with their sin against a moral God. And that sense of shame, that sense of nakedness, is also universally true across all societies and all human beings, no matter where, when, and uh, what time they lived. There's some kind of an inward feeling of shame that drives us to put clothes on. And shouldn't we be glad that we all felt that shame this morning? And do I need to exposit that feeling that we have when we are, you know, naked? My, my mom tells the story but that, uh, I think it was before my sister's wedding, she had this terrible nightmare the night before the wedding that she went through the rehearsal dinner, she, she went through the, you know, the, the wedding, the photos afterwards entirely naked. And she says, there I stood for the photos and I'm thinking, I'm naked, why am I standing here naked? It was a terrible dream in her life. But we all understand that sense, don't we? And Adam and Eve connected that feeling of bodily shame to their first ever experience of sin. We perceive, whether we realize it or not, that we are morally accountable. We see in creation, whether we completely realize it or not, that there is a God, that he is creative, that he is powerful, that he is moral. And all of this, the blessing of natural revelation, sufficient that men are without excuse. Now here's the thing. Just like this mirror has limitations in me really seeing you as a whole person, natural revelation also has a limitation. And here it is. That creation says enough to us to condemn us, but not enough to save us. It says enough to condemn us, but it, has, it doesn't say enough to save us. A mirror has limitations. Creation has limitations as well. I can stare at the sky and I can become aware that there, I mean, there's, how did this happen? There, somebody must have done it. 
there must be some God, some greater being that made all of this. And I can, I can study, you know, biology or some other ology that helps me see into the fabric of, you know, the leaf or the, you know, polywog or whatever it is and go, there's just no way chance and time would do this. There's got to be a creator. But I can stare at the stars all that I want and I will never come to the conclusion on my own that God has a son named Jesus who died on the cross for my sins and was resurrected on the third day. I'm not gonna get that. For me to get that, I need another kind of revelation. I need the word of God. I need the gospel somehow to come into my hearing so that I can respond in faith to the one message that saves. And Paul is going to, he's building this case not only for what the gospel is, but for the need of the gospel to be proclaimed in all the world. He's gonna say this in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't, faith doesn't come by looking at the stars. It comes by the hearing of divine revelation in the gospel about Jesus. He goes on to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. These verses have launched missionaries into remote places. Why? Because if they don't hear, they won't be saved. Which leads really to this question, and I I wrote in my first Bethelonians, if you got that, and if you don't get them, please sign up for these emails that I send out. I wrote to you and I said, we're going to address a question that we get often. What about the aborigine? What about that remote tribe person who nobody, you know, they live their whole life, they never hear about Jesus? Are you saying that they also fall under God's condemnation, that they also are accountable to God forever? Now, this is a difficult question. But there are things that the Bible teaches here that help us. Here's one. The Bible teaches us that we are accountable to God for the light that we've received. For the light that we've received. So for example, Jesus says it would be better if Judas had never been born than to betray the Son of God. He says in Matthew 10, 15, it would be better to have been a citizen of wicked Sodom and Gomorrah than to be a citizen of one of the towns that his disciples goes into and preaches the kingdom of God, okay? Better to be a homosexual living a blatantly wicked lifestyle in Sodom than to be a Jew who goes to the synagogue and hears the truth from one of the disciples and rejects it. And we find that God holds us accountable to the light that we've received, and that there are degrees of punishment based on the level of light that we rejected in our life. So while there is hell, there are different degrees of hell. Now here's the sobering news today. What you have heard simply by being in church today places you in the highest level of accountability to God forever. You have heard more truth that can save you by being here today than that aborigine who never hears the truth. All he has is creation. 
All he has is a sense that there's a higher being. And he maybe realizes that that higher being is a moral being and tries to live a relatively moral life. But you, you today at least, maybe this is your very first time ever hearing it, but today you have heard that Jesus is the savior of the world and salvation comes by faith alone in him. And you are accountable forever for that incredible privilege that millions of people will never have heard in their life. You have the opportunity today for that inward perceiving of God to lead you, your spiritual GPS, to lead you by that light to a personal faith and a receiving of salvation uh, through Christ. You have that opportunity today. They don't have that opportunity. And you are accountable for that to God forever. So better to be an aborigine who never heard the gospel than to be you if you reject the truth. Better to be a remote tribesman in Ecuador than to be you forever if you suppress the truth, and me as well. So what should you do, my dear friend? If right now you're not at a point where you can say, I, just, I can't say I'm gonna follow Jesus right now, I, I'm just not there. Yet there's something inside of you that tells you that you are accountable for your life. You have a sense that there is a God and you feel the weight of some responsibility to God, and you fear that heaven and hell are real, what should you do? Friend, let me ask you this question. Why did God put trillions of reflections in the world around us? Why did he do that? He did it because he wants you to know him. Why else go to the trouble? Why else do all of this stuff? Why do it unless God wants you to know what he is like? And for that knowledge to lead you to some place, and I'm here to tell you right now where that some place is. It is to the cross of Jesus Christ. And for you to realize the God who made the world and is wrathful against sin loved us in Christ, and that all who put their faith and trust in him for salvation are no longer under the wrath of God, but are under the grace of God and the love of God forever. Or to say it this way, God wants to save us. He wants to save us. In a few verses, chapter two, verse four, he's gonna say, God's kindness is meant to lead you to redemption to repentance, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't put all of these up to condemn us. He puts all of these up to save us. It's like my girls. They, their favorite game is hide and seek. I got a four-year-old, if you don't know, I got a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. So when I come home, I'm like, Daddy, yeah, let's play throw. Let's play hide and seek. So we play a lot of hide and seek in our house. 
Now, they're getting a little older, and they're actually getting kind of crafty with it, okay? But early in our experience of hide-and-seek, I would say, okay, Dad's going to go count, and you girls go hide. So they, off they go to hide, and I'm one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ready or not, here I come, and I'd come around the corner like, you know, fee, fi, fo, fum, you know, that kind of, daddy's coming, where's the girls, where are they hiding? I'd wait about half a second, and I would hear, we're over here! (laughs) Or they're like, they're making sounds, you know, making noise. Why? Because they want to be found. They want to be found. And all of this is God making noise because he wants to be found. And he wants you to find him. And if not... We go back to the verse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And you today have an opportunity to not suppress the truth, but to receive it, to believe it, and to be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And so the plan of God is to go from magnificent mirrors to genuine faith and trust in Jesus, who died to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. And I just wonder today, do you want to be included in that? Because God is speaking to you every day. And the question is, are we listening?